0: From people.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing.
1: What gets measured gets done, Justin. If you're only measuring revenue and you're only measuring customer numbers, then the top of the funnel may not be in the state that it needs to be to keep those growth rates up or at the other end, you know, you may be bringing customers on board, but they're churning out just as fast because they're not being delighted in the experience. Hi
0: folks, Justin Schreiber here. Today I'm joined by Rachel Powell, Chief Customer Officer at Zero, one of the hottest software companies on the Australian Securities Exchange with a market cap of over $20 billion. Despite a meteoric rise to the C-suite, Rachel has never asked for a promotion. Her get-it-done attitude and insatiable curiosity have been all the fuel she's needed to flourish across a range of disciplines, including marketing, HR, and customer success. On today's show, Rachel talks about the link between the way companies treat their people and the way they treat their customers, what it takes to build a thriving customer community and how to build resilience and tenacity in a world that is all too willing to serve up instant gratification. Let's jump into the conversation. Rachel, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Justin. It's great to be here.
0: Well, I'm really excited to get into some of your stories and some of your background and experience. You have a rich repository to draw upon, but I wanted to start off talking about your grandmother who in her own right is a remarkable woman. And I find it somewhat ironic that one of the things you remember about her is she would make you a ham sandwich. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that, but why that is so ironic relative to the other things that she accomplished in her life.
1: Sure. So she was an incredible woman. Um, she emigrated from Germany after World War II with my father and my uncle and my grandfather, and they landed here in Australia. And, and um, you know, they weren't particularly welcome being from that part of the world and given what had happened in World War II. In fact, my grandfather was a, a scientist, um, a very well um, renowned scientist in Germany, and his qualifications weren't recognized here. So he had to go back to study. But my grandmother was a journalist and she was a journalist um, that continued to work right up until when she passed away at the age of 88. And she really was um, a woman beyond her years and wisdom and and strength of character um, in a world that was uh, was still very male dominated. Um, And I think that a lot of their success really came down to her tenacity and her grit and, um when, when I grew up, and I was one of five children, and I remember she walked everywhere. She used to walk everywhere, and she used to walk over and have dinner with us, and then she would um she would walk to school to our school and deliver lunch to us before she'd head off to work. And um a couple of things that she, it was always the same. it was rye bread with um with butter and and ham, like fresh ham from the butcher, and always a big M. Which is a chocolate milk and a little packet of almonds. And if we were lucky, we got a little Kit Kat. I don't know if you had Kit Kats in, in oh, America. Yes. yes. So that was always what we got from her. But she was an incredibly hard worker. And she was the Australian correspondent for De Spiegel. So when um, this was all pre internet and email, and she would get on the plane and fly to Canberra and interview politicians. And I remember later in life when I got my first job at, um, out of university or second job actually at, at IBM. And I had my first email account and I opened it and there was an email from my grandmother. So I've still got that email. My very first email was from my Omi who, um, wrote me an email about how proud she was of me. But she was definitely an inspirational, um, she was an inspirational woman in my life, but also an incredible role model just on, how you can face adversities and still achieve um, what your what your goals are. I'm sure that
0: the way that she made you feel is the way that she made many people feel, and her ability to blend that grit, that tenacity, but also the humanity is probably one of the secret ingredients to her success.
1: Absolutely. I mean, she was she was a fantastic storyteller. I remember that we used to ride our bikes over to her house on the weekend and sit on her porch, and she would make um, homemade lemonade out of the the oranges and the lemons from her backyard, and we'd sit on the porch and she'd tell us stories about some of the some of the incredible um, situations that she had to get out of when she was uh, you know faced with um escaping east germany and and um and even just moving her family from one side of the world to the other. And we'd just sit there for hours listening to her stories and I used to say to her, you have to write this down, Omi. You have to write a book. This is an incredible, incredible story. And, in fact, she went on to, um, when my grandfather passed away, she went and got some help, some um, therapy from a a a psychiatric and psychiatry and um, psychology clinic that also trained students to become um, counsellors and psychologists. And she ended up working there, and ended up writing all the exam papers for the students, and then correcting them. And then in her final years, she was actually awarded an honorary doctorate in psychology, um, even though she'd never sat the course. And that was quite unheard of as well. But she was she was yeah brilliant, brilliant in mind, brilliant in in soul, and had the most incredible heart.
0: Well, it sounds like she left behind quite a legacy, but certainly uh, not the least of that legacy was what she left to you—the confidence that she helped you to build. And and I, I can't help but believe that there's a part of her in you that you've you've carried forward to the next generation.
1: Definitely, I think that diligence yeah. and determination is something that's been passed down through that side of my family. Um, which you know, it's really interesting when you become an adult and you start to look back at your life and you wonder how you are the way you are, and it's a combination of um, biology and environment. But when I look back at, at both sides of my family's life, I can absolutely see why I, I am the person that I am today.
0: Well, and you certainly going down to the biology had a little bit of spunk in you, I think, uh, from the start. I remember a few days ago, you and I were talking a little bit about your mother and your mother asking you to mend your socks. And she had a little <laughs> bit of a double standard there which you didn't appreciate. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. I was actually reflecting on that conversation and thinking, you know, out of my mother and my grandmother, they're both incredibly strong women in their own right, but for different reasons. And I think my grandmother was probably more of a feminist than my mother. And I remember when we were growing up and I was one of five children, I had three younger brothers, and um, mum asked me to, um, to go and darn my sock because there was holes in it. And she, as she was sitting there darning my brother Josh's sock and I turned around to her and I, said to he, uh, I asked her, is, did he not t- have to darn his own sock because he had a, and I'll let you put the word in, that, <laughs> that I said to her. And it was actually, she actually sat there and she looked at me and she said, that's a really fair point. And She said, Josh, come over here. I'm going to teach you how to darn your own socks. And that's also a theme that I've carried in my life because, as a female working in fairly male-dominated environments, you know there is, um, you know, there's a role for all of us to play to point out the obvious um, that isn't potentially so obvious for for people that still have some of those unconscious biases. So, and and you know, nine times out of ten, when you do. Um, you get a very positive response, like my mother's response was, which was just ignorance, just like I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. So, yeah, I definitely did have a cheeky element and that was sort of the personality that I had growing up as well. I was known as the one that would always um, put the elephant in the room, so to speak, or or bring up the topics that were diff- difficult for other people to bring up so that we could air clear the air and um, have an open conversation before we moved on. And and that side of me definitely comes from, from my mother, who's very much about making sure that we walk our way through the world whilst solving the problems of the world.
0: You know, there's so much power in calling out the double standard. A few, about a year ago, John Thompson was on the program, who's the chairman of Microsoft. John is black. And he talked about what it was like for him to grow up in the South. Uh, As a young person, he would deliver ice to different stores and and retail establishments. And on one occasion, one of the the owners said, I'm not going to take that ice because I don't want your blackness to rub off on it.
1: Oh, God.
0: And John just looked at him and he said, tell me why you think that. And is that something you say to all the people that deliver the ice? And just being willing to confront in a direct way what was clearly a a gross um, bias Mm. Put the person on the spot and made them think. But that person paused and said, I'm really sorry. You know what? I was out of line there. And it takes courage to be able to do that. But at the same time, that's, I think, how change comes about.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we've seen that a lot lately with some of the challenges that we've faced in in the last couple of years. Um, I can think of a few, like around Black Lives Matter. And we had a terrible terrorist attack in New Zealand um, that attacked a mosque. and one of the things that we did at zero is just make sure that we kept we kept the conversation going that we um, made it safe psychologically for people who weren't particularly um well versed or or knowledgeable about you know what to say or what questions you know to ask about different religions we made it okay to ask anything we made it okay to actually bring those conversations out and bring people to for the four to encourage them to, you know, to build on their knowledge, because a lot of this is ignorance. A lot of it is it's unconscious. And if we can bring it to the conscience, then we can deal with it.
0: Yeah, I think I think that point you make about creating a safe environment for people who genuinely want to engage on the topic and maybe a little bit fearful that they don't know how to engage on it, but it's coming from a good place. That's critical to being able to break down those barriers and, and bring people that are on different sides to the same same place.
1: Yeah. When, when that, um, Christchurch, um, mosque attack happened, we, um, I flew to New Zealand and we had a couple of round tables, one in Wellington and one in Auckland, because we had a lot of Muslims that worked for us yeah. that were terrified of, of coming to work. Like they were terrified to actually be on public transport alone, um, because they were terrified that there was a lot of New Zealanders that were, um, were potentially in some way, and it doesn't even make rational sense, having some negative association with that religion because the attack had happened in a mosque. Um, And it was fascinating just getting all sorts of people that were just interested or Muslim or scared around the table to talk about what was going on for them. There was lots of tears. There was lots of um there was lots of, I learned a lot just just around, you know, you know what was going on for a lot of a lot of that community, and what we could do to support them, and um, it really did help. Those are the things, those little moments that matter, are the things that strengthen the cultures of organisations and bring people to work together.
0: I got a great piece of advice. I was back at LinkedIn um, when when a lot of the injustices were committed against uh, the black community, and someone said. Just sit down and talk to someone that comes from that community and don't worry about what your position is on the topic. Just worry about understanding what their position was. And that was such a liberating comment for me. I think so many times we walk into situations and we have our armor on feeling like we need to take all the ideas and refute them if we don't agree. And that creates a lot of, uh, a lot of negative energy and also a lot of apprehension. But when I went in totally open and had a conversation, like you said, I learned things that I never imagined I could have learned before. And it was a wonderful moment of, I I think, coming together um, and and bonding that um, to this day, I still remember.
1: Mm. We did the same thing. Um, Tony Ward, our America's president, he brought the team together throughout that period. And we brought in some help by a gentleman by the name of Dr. Tony Byers, who came in and actually facilitated some open forum discussions with our teams about what was going on for them, um, yeah. particularly for, for those that were from those communities. And they were, there was a lot of anger and there was a lot of resentment. And um, you, you actually can't move through life productively unless you actually work through those emotions. So, um, yeah, I think that that, that that is the difference between, I think, organisations of today that are progressive and have that growth mindset and the organisations that were around in you know pre nineteen nineties nineteen eighties who probably would have said this is not an issue for us to deal with this is not related to us and and wiped their hands of it and walked away.
0: Yeah, well, I'm glad that you brought that up, and I'd love to get your thought on the role that the corporation plays in these societal events and moments? What is the responsibility their corporation has? And where does that responsibility end? Where where should people be drawing the line?
1: Uh, Well, look, I think that in any organization, this is where diversity and inclusion comes in as a topic. In any organization, you have to reflect the customer base in which you serve. And most organizations are serving diverse customer bases. So to do that, you need to make sure that you have diversity in your teams and in the people that you hire but then you also need to make sure that you're having that empathetic connection with your customers and being the chief customer officer you know that is something that i think about on a regular basis is so how do we make sure that we are not only best reflecting our customers so that we can build the products and services that that they need but how do we actually take it a step forward and delight them and that that might be in when times are good by making sure that we're amplifying the goodness but we can't desert you know, our people and our customers when times are bad. So it's really about making sure that you have that empathetic connection by understanding and being able to walk in the shoes of others. And I do think that it is a responsibility for organisations to have a perspective. Now, what I don't believe is I don't believe that the organisation needs to enforce the perspective of on all of their employees but I think what they need to do is they need to be very open-minded and they need to ensure that there is that respect and responsibility of every individual to respect everyone's opinion and make sure that um, they're creating the most positive environment where it's psychologically safe to speak your mind, but they're, you know, the, the organisation is operating in the interests of their employees and in the interests of their customers
0: that's great advice. And I, I love the the fact that you're very deliberate around where to draw those lines, what the responsibility is and the things that are out of bounds. I think that more and more it's incumbent upon officers of companies to be clear on that. And to your point, 80s and 90s, this wasn't even part of the, the vocabulary of the leaders that were in charge of companies.
1: No. I mean, you can't, you, you can't as an organization mandate who people vote for or what religion they are, but it's about making... Making sure that you're being respectful around yep. the diversity of all the employees because as I said, they are a reflection of your customer base and you cannot accurately serve your customers unless you understand them and that means that you need to have that diverse, um, that, that diverse cohort on the inside of the organization. Let's take a quick
0: break to hear from our sponsors and then we'll jump back into the conversation. welcome back you're listening to legends of sales and marketing and i'm your host justin schreiber let's get back to the discussion all right i wanted to jump back to your past again another interesting fact about you you were a saver from an (laughs) early age you understood the importance of saving money and i think there was probably a deeper reason that that was so important to you can you tell us a little bit about that
1: sure so I, I'm one of five children and and my parents separated when I was 14 years old. So they had been married for 17 years, and my mum had put her whole career on hold to be um who she thought she needed to be, which was a the perfect, you know, stay-at-home mother. Um, you know, we were the we were the perfect looking Brady Bunch from the outside. We were five children, you know, members of their local tennis club. Um, we um you know, we just went on holiday every year. We, My father was a, a physician, a doctor. Mum was a stay-at-home mum and very involved in, you know, the PTA or the school environment. And then all of a sudden, fairly quickly, none of us really saw it coming. Our lives imploded when they separated. And I remember um, even though I have an older sister, I was pretty much instrumental in helping my mum navigate through that period of time, which was really challenging and for a 14-year-old probably way more than I you know, needed to or should have done at that age. But I remember quite poignantly making the decision with myself that I was never, ever, 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 ever going to be financially dependent on anyone. I watched my mum have to go back and retrain. Um, I watched her go back to work. And do um, she was a nurse, so she did a shift that started at 7 a.m. in the morning so she could be home when we got home from school at 3: 30. So um, So essentially, what I did as soon as I started earning money, and, and I did probably accelerate my path into, in, into the career life um, because of that experience as well. I used to put away50 dollars, a 50 note, in a little pouch in my underwear drawer every week. And that was money that I didn't know what I was going to do with, but I n- needed to know that I had it there in case I, um, I ever needed it. And that progressed, um, into my marriage. So I got m- married fairly young at 23 and it um, wasn't until I was about 25. And my husband knew that I did this and he thought it was quite endearing, but he, you know, he was, he was okay with it, even though we had shared bank accounts. But I remember when we bought our first apartment. And we had to put down a, a $5,000 deposit. Otherwise, they were going to not hold it for us. And that, in those days, we didn't have $5,000 in the account. Um, we were kind of living hand to mouth as two young executives. Um, and so we um, I went back to my underwear drawer and I was able to produce $5,000 of cash that meant that we could secure that first apartment. So that was the last time from that moment on, I never put that money in, in my underwear drawer, but it was a discipline that, I, um, that became a habit and it really was about me feeling safe, if knowing that if I needed it, there was money there for me to, to, um, to get to.
0: Well, that's a wonderful story. I love, the, uh, I love the outcome of that as well. You may be homeless to this day were it not for the wad of cash <laughs> stashed away in your underwear drawer. Yeah. I will be the first to admit, Rachel, I am not a very good saver. So let it be said on the record. My wife is a wonderful saver. She's very forward thinking, but we have three daughters uh, as well. And she's done a great job with them of teaching them the value of saving, giving them an allowance. And we now have a, a daughter who's about to graduate from college and she's actually entering the workforce and she saved some money. And I am so proud of her for having done that, but it's not that she just figured it out. It's that she had an example that was able to teach her that principle. And that's something, to your point, if you get in the habit, it goes with you throughout the rest of your life.
1: That's, a fascinating, that's an interesting anecdote in itself because I probably had never, never kind of thought of myself as a good saver, but I am, and it probably did start right back then. And um, like you, I have, um, I have three children, and two of them in particular are, are incredibly good savers, and they probably do learn from their role models um and i think that you know one of the philosophies that i've always said to my children is when you earn when you start earning money break it into 3 like a third for yourself and you can spend it on whatever you like put a third away in savings account and the other third put towards like something philanthropic give back to someone who's not as well off as you are so i think if you can have that discipline when you start early like that little nest egg builds over time and then at some point when there's enough there, you can put it into shares and then that that accumulates faster. But it definitely is a, a discipline. And, and like you, my husband always says when I'm the CFO of the family, we definitely save a lot more money than when he is. And we hand those grains back and forth depending on who's got a, got what on their plate. I
0: think also it reinforces this idea of delayed gratification. The understanding that there will be something down the road that will be waiting for me, but I need to be disciplined today And that principle carries over from finance into everything that we do, whether it's developing talents or investing in ourselves from an educational or professional perspective. So I think across the board, it just makes people better people.
1: Uh, And spot on about delayed gratification. And in the world that we're living in today, it concerns me greatly that everything is immediate and everything can come to you now. Like we're no longer living in that world where you had to wait a whole week for your favorite TV show for the new episode. And um You know, I say to my children, eat the frogs first, which means when you get up in the morning, do the things you don't want to do instead of jumping straight to the things that you do want to do. And that's why, you know, in this household, we start with exercise every morning or we do something that, you know, helps us with our mental health, but also pushes us a little bit out of our comfort zone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great and that's a great habit to start um, while you're young, as you said. All right. So you, uh, you were on the fast track. You started off in accounting, though which is a long way from where you are today overseeing the people aspect of business. Why accounting and how did that work out for you?
1: So I think to be honest with you, Justin, I think I became an accountant because I was rebelling against my father. So my father was a doctor and my mother was a nurse and it was always just assumed that we would all go into the medical profession. And after going through, you know, pretty tumultuous teenage years, I wanted to do whatever I could do that was as far away as anything in the medical profession as possible, and so I went and did a business degree, an undergrad in in business, and I studied accounting and marketing. And my first job was in a um, a challenger brand telecommunications company as a as a graduate accountant. So, um, and and to be honest, it really did work well with my personality, which was you know that that left brain in me which was, you know, um, I've got a combination of the left and right brain, but that left brain component of, you know, debits and credits and everything having a balance and being able to see how things all um, um, added up and translating ledger accounts into P&Ls and balance sheets, it, it really it resonated with me and, um, and I felt very fortunate to be given a, a, the opportunity to work at, at this company as a graduate accountant. So I did start in accounting but but it wasn't long because it was a startup environment it was one of those organizations where there was more to do than there were people to do it as because we were growing so fast so very quickly I took on additional responsibilities and within sort of 18 months to 2 years I was had one foot in the accounting camp and one foot in the marketing camp and I was doing a little little bit of both of those roles um so that's where I started my career and then, yeah, then I moved on and spent over a decade in, in IBM and then did a few other little things and then have ended up where I am today.
0: So this idea that you had one foot in different departments and those that were supervising you just kept giving you responsibility is a theme that's going to repeat itself throughout your career. What do you think it was about how you approached business that allowed your supervisors to just continue to give you more and bring you into different disciplines?
1: A couple of things, Justin. So, I think the first thing was I was curious. Like I was I was not one of these people and I still am not that I just want to operate within the world, the little part of the world that I'm working in within a bigger organisation. So, I was always kind of looking over to see what was going on in all the other parts of the organisation and um, and always offering my help. I've never been in somebody who's Demanded a promotion or demanded or, you know, even um, politically navigated my way to take on more. I have a philosophy that if you show, um, you don't ask, then it becomes pretty evident and pretty obvious that you're a safe pair of hands. You're somebody who's driven, ambitious, intelligent and has the aptitude to continue to evolve and to continue to grow. So one of the themes that's come out in my career and in the mentoring that I do with other people, I talk to them about don't be in a rush to get to the next step, but be in a rush to actually explore and grow and continuously learn. And I think if you do that and you build those ambidextrous skills, then you're more valuable as an asset for any organization.
0: So so one of your themes is don't ask for the promotion. But let me ask you this. Do you find that it's Common that you'll ask for new experiences or the opportunity to try new things.
1: I don't even feel like I ask necessarily. I just, I just start doing it. Like I just, I, I feel the void that's in places that are mm-hmm. obvious that they're being filled and no one's stepping into them. And I think um, there's probably some instances, particularly in an environment like IBM, which is a lot more structured where there is a lot more um, formality in terms of moving from one thing or growing your portfolio to to another. But in a lot of the environments that I've worked in, fortunately for me and the way that I like to work, it's been more about roll up your sleeves um, and just get in there and do what needs to be done. And then the results come. And when the results come, it becomes very evident that the results are, uh, are in place because of the efforts that that you and your team put in and as you evolve as a leader and you become, uh, you you know, you grow and you become higher up the food chain so to speak, you've got to also learn that you can't always be the one that rolls up their sleeve and does the work. So then it becomes a transition in terms of how you go from managing yourself to how you go to managing individuals to how you go to managing teams and it's even very different going from managing individuals to managing teams And a lot of people in their career don't actually get past that how to manage individuals. And there's a lot of managers that you see that manage large teams of people, but they're managing them individually. They're not orchestrating the whole team. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a distinction that's been a real epiphany for me too, as I've um, moved through my career.
0: I always find it fascinating to find out what motivates people. And there's no right and there's no wrong. We're all different. Some people actually do have an explicit goal by this age, I want to have this title, and they drive towards that. Other people are simply interested in having experiences, trying things, doing things. And life works out great for them as well. I actually have a favorite saying, if experience is your gold, life will make you rich. And I find that there's just an innumerable number of opportunities to learn to stretch yourself and to try new things.
1: I think being curious is the the number one trait that is the most powerful that you can have in life because if you're continuously curious about whatever <clears throat> about the relationships that you're in about the work that you're doing about um what's going on in the greater in the greater world then you're constantly learning and evolving as a human being and we all wanna be the best version of ourselves. And you can only do that if you continue to evolve.
0: That's Rachel Powell, Chief Customer Officer at Zero. When we come back, Rachel talks about why she stayed at IBM for over a decade and the mentor who taught her how to handle highly charged political situations with a aplomb. Stay with us, I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. My guest today is Rachel Powell, Chief Customer Officer at 0 We've had several IBM alum on the show, and there's a reason for that. IBM knew how to turn great talent into great leaders. Rachel discovered this firsthand when she developed a relationship with someone who, to this day, remains a close personal advisor. Let's get back to the conversation. Okay, 12 years at IBM. We've had a lot of IBM alum on the program. Clearly, there was something that kept you there for over a decade. What were the key experiences and who were the key people that really made an impact on you while you were
1: there? Well, IBM is an incredible organization. And I think that I'm, I'm very grateful to IBM for giving me a lot of different experiences. So I started at IBM in a business development slash marketing role for our ISV program. And then I moved and, and I did that in a Australia. Then I uh, um, participated in that program and in that team across Asia Pacific. I moved into channel management. I moved into strategy. Worked worked on strategy, and I'll come back to that because there was somebody in that role that was very instrumental in informing who I am today. Um, And then I spent time in um, in marketing. So really, the diversity of the different roles across sales, marketing, strategy, channel management. I'm very grateful to IBM and it also gave me that global perspective um, and all of this was underpinned with the right level of formal training, like the training that we did on on culture and the training that we did on, um, you know, the discipline of marketing and the training that we did on the discipline of strategy, the training that we did on um, leading inclusive teams so, as you can imagine, being a large organisation like IBM, there was plenty of opportunity to get involved in as much as as um, as you chose to lean into. And if you were in, you know, the top talent or the the high acceleration programs too, you you got invited into a, a lot of opportunities to grow and expand in your career, doing different projects. So, um, I'm. Very grateful to IBM. The other thing I'm grateful to IBM about because I had my three children whilst I was at IBM, they were very progressive. Um, my first child was born in 2002, and they, and my last in 2007, and they were very progressive in providing me with the flexibility that I needed at different stages of my life. So I've done everything from two days a week to three days a week, to four days a week, to a condensed week, to a job share. I did um. Renata Bertram and I did a, an executive um, position running integrated marketing communications, but the first of that level in the organization where both of us were doing the role three days a week each, one day overlap. So they were very open-minded to making it work for for working mums and working dads, and I'm very grateful for that. But to go back to your question about some of the instrumental um, leaders that I had in that business, um there is one lady whose name is Rashmi Chatterjee who was my leader when i worked in in the role of helping her pull together the asia pacific software strategy across five regions and five brands and she was an incredible an incredibly smart lady um she was incredibly humble she was incredibly kind and she used to she taught me so much about um Navigating the politics of an organization. So we had to pull together a, a strategy that reflected the five brands and the five regions where the five brand leads for those re- for the Asia Pacific region were all male and the five, um, the five country managers were all male and all of them had very different perspectives on what this strategy should look like. And the way that I watched her massage and navigate the conversations to get to the outcome that was the best for um, IBM was was just gold. Um, And I'm very grateful to her because what she would do at the end of every single one of these very deep dive sessions is then have time with me afterwards to explain what we did, why we did it the way that we did it, and what was the next step. And um, she actually encouraged me to go back to business school. And whilst I was working under her under her remit, I went back and did a master's of business. So I was able to put a lot of what I was learning academically into practice in the work environment. Um, she went on to become uh, the, the lead for marketing for IBM overall in New York, and I believe now she's working as a CEO of a, of a um, data security company in, um, in the UK somewhere. But she's, she's one incredible human being. And I often just drop her a note every now and again when I'm reflective or I'm talking to people like you and and she comes up and I make sure that I let her know that I'm grateful for what she did for me because she was really quite pivotal. In fact, there was a lot of traits in Rashmi that reminded me of my grandmother. Very, very similar, high intelligence, um, very good communicators, excellent storytellers, but very kind as well um, and kind with their time and kind in the way that they manage difficult people.
0: I was just going to make the same connection. I saw, I saw a lot of similarity. I was thinking about the fact that your grandmother would make you a sandwich, sit down and tell you stories, despite the fact that she was such a high-functioning person and doing some very important jobs. Uh, Reshmi as well would, would be willing after probably a, an intense set of meetings to just take time with you and help you to become a better version of yourself. And I think in both cases, that speaks tremendously about the character of those individuals.
1: Absolutely. And it's paying it forward. It's helped me um, mold who I want to be for the people that um, work under my leadership or look up to me as a mentor too. And hopefully there's, you know, people out there that will hopefully say the same thing about me one day. You know, that kindness and curiosity is um, two traits that I think are, so important to take through your life.
0: Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about Zero, the company where you are currently working. Fascinating company, listed on the ASX, twenty billion dollars market cap, thirty percent year over year growth. Tell us a little bit more about that company, and also, what are the drivers behind that kind of success?
1: Well, Zero is a, is a company that is a small business platform. So we have about two point seven million subscribers globally. And it is a company that was born out of Wellington in New Zealand in 2006, so about 15 years ago. And we are one of the first companies to put accounting software in the cloud. So we were able, we were cloud um, native, which meant that from day one we could go global. Um, we're an open platform, and because we've gone from being pure uh, accounting software to more of a small business platform. That means that we, in being open, we have a 1,000 app partners and more than 300 financial services institutions that plug into our platform that make it easy for small businesses to operate their business, their back office, so that they can, they can do that more efficiently, so they can spend time working on, um, on their customers' So, in doing so, our purpose is to improve the lives of people in small business, their advisors being their accountants and bookkeepers and their communities around the globe, and our vision is to be the most trusted and insightful small business platform. And why that's an important vision, Justin, is you can imagine with all of the transactions that operate through the the Zero platform, um, there's a plethora of data in that, and that data is very rich and we're able to aggregate and anonymize that data and put in place um, a whole lot of predictions and work with small businesses to ensure that we are their most trusted and insightful small business platform. So, it helps them navigate their, their cash flow needs. It helps them understand what they need to be thinking about in terms of what's their next action to keep their business growing or, or in times like COVID, even, if, even just afloat. Um, So we've built a really strong community of advocates through our accountants and bookkeepers, and I think that's something that's been quite unique in our strategy vis-a-vis some of our competitors. So we do see our accountants and bookkeepers as an extension of the Zero family. We know that if we can actually work with them, they're able to to touch many, many, many more millions of small businesses collectively than we could if we went one-to-one to all the small businesses across the globe. And importantly, we have a really customer centric strategy. So, um, in October 2019, I was appointed the chief customer officer, looking at all of the all of the the customer journey management for both our accountant and bookkeeper channel and our direct channel. So, bringing all of those functions together from marketing, communications, sales, digital transformation customer support, customer success and education has just meant that we're able to continue to grow at such a rapid rate in an environment that's as um, uncertain and ambiguous as we're living in at the moment, which has meant that we've been able to serve our customers much more effectively.
0: Well, it wasn't lost on me that you have a background in accounting and now the community that you're building comprises accountants and bookkeepers. I think it's so important that We, as companies have, can empathize with the customers that we serve. And there's no better way to do that than to actually come from that community originally.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that's a philosophy of of us as an organization. We are constantly, like it all starts with people. And we're looking for making sure that we're bringing the right people in to serve our customers, be it small businesses, all those accountants and bookkeepers who have an affinity with those cohorts. Um, there's a lot of people within Zero that have worked in small business or grown up in with um, small business operators, operators in, in their families. So they understand the challenges that small businesses face every day. And they're really committed to our purpose of improving their lives um, and the communities in which they operate within. So I think that 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 is really powerful and we talk about that a lot at Zero we call it the inside-out philosophy, knowing that if we get it right on the inside and we have those passionate players that are really committed to the cause, then we're better able to serve our customer base.
0: I had my dad on the show for Father's Day. He was Mm -hmm. a a salesperson initially and then rose up through the ranks. But when I was young, I would actually see my dad leave the house at 3.30 in the morning to, to do his sales route. And I also saw the impact that the business aspect of his life had on the family. And I recognize that when you're in the office doing work, you might not be able to go to the ball game and, and support your kids in those activities. So in a very real way, I appreciate the trade-offs that salespeople are making every day. One of the things that we do at People AI is we we build a technology, we call it People Glass, that actually reduces the time you need to spend updating software. And for me, that's very personal. Because I can empathize with what it means to give a salesperson back a couple of hours every week. Because I was that kid that used to want to get those hours um, from my dad so that he could spend time with me. And you can't teach somebody that. They have to live it to be able to understand it.
1: If you you feel it, then it's way more powerful than if you hear it. And that's exactly what you just described is exactly what we're trying to do for small business operators so that they... Can improve their lives, and we've de- deliberately not um, we've deliberately not articulated our purpose in terms of grow your. We can grow small businesses. We've said improve their lives because improving lives of small business might mean different things for different small businesses. So for one small business, it might be getting back those four hours to take your child to the ball game. For another, it might be for them to be able to spend more time on their hobby or looking after. You know, an elderly person in their, in their family or in their community. For others, it might be about diversifying. So whatever it is, we know that the technology and this, the zero small business platform allows them the efficiencies to be able to understand their business in a way that makes them better able to make decisions in the moment. But also importantly, give them back time. And I can't tell you how many customers I talk to, and I, I talk to customers regularly. I do customer interviews um, like this, like sort of podcasty type interviews. And I also um, spend um, a, um, a Friday afternoon a month calling our customers that have replied to our NPS surveys. And the amount of customers that just say, "Thank you so much for the time that you've given me." back to do the things that are most important for me and my family.
0: So you've served as the chief people officer. You're currently serving as the chief customer officer. Those are two roles that don't typically go together. But actually, as I've been listening to you talk, I realized the common denominator in both of those roles is simply people. Whether you're dealing with the people that live inside the walls of your business or outside the walls of the business, they're all people. But can you talk a little bit more about the affinity between those two roles and how you've landed in both of those positions
1: in fact it was quite an interesting um induction into zero when i was asked to be the chief people officer because i'd never done an hr role in any organisation my background was predominantly marketing strategy i had spent some time in executive search and recruitment so i knew what good looked like i knew how important talent was and at that stage in my life i i was back at school doing a masters in positive psychology so i also knew that if organisations could embed positive psychology interventions into their practices, they were going to get far more discretionary effort from their employees because their employee well-being is going to be amplified. And so um, I jumped in again, you know, in true spirit of, of being curious and wanting to diversify and build my ambidextrous skills. And I was very fortunate that Rod Drury, who was the founder and CEO at the time, he actually said to me, I want I want a marketer. I want a marketer in my chief people officer role, and you are a marketer that understands people. You've worked in exec search and talent. You've worked in strategy, and I really need somebody to help me codify the strategy. Before you know, he knew his tenure was not going to be forever, and we need to mobilize that strategy through a very fast-growing workforce. So, what spending time in the chief people officer role gave me really that that insight to the importance of winning the hearts and minds of our people first. Because if you didn't win the hearts and minds of the people first, if you didn't get it right on the inside, then you weren't going to get it right on the outside. And that that philosophy right there go, it comes right down to us as human beings. If you cannot get it right on the inside, then you're useless for anyone else. You've really got to start with yourself. And that's the same with organisations. And the soul of an organisation needs to be healthy before it can actually adequately um, respond to and delight the needs of the customer base. So we, um, we did a lot of work on making sure that we were hiring the right people. We did a lot of work on making sure our purpose was clearly articulated. We did a lot of work on our values. We did a lot of work on ensuring that we had job crafting in place where people were able to play to their strengths because we know when people are doing what they enjoy and what they're good at, then that they are going to be far more productive than asking them to actually try and improve on something that they're not, you know, that doesn't come naturally to them. Um, we also did a lot of work on putting post-psych interventions into place inside the organization, which improved the well-being. Um, and, you know, that's a whole other topic that we could talk about a- another day, but there are, there are, you know, five or six elements that make up collective well-being and it's not being able to focus on one or two of them it's you have to continuously work on all of those five or six elements and these are sci- proven scientifically to actually you know in combination improve the individual and the collective well-being which improves performance of teams and and um, organizations so that really gave me that insight to ensuring if we got it right on the inside then we had a better chance of being able to amplify this magic and this passion that is very unique. I've never quite experienced anything like it that we have at Zero. Um, and so uh, over after a period of time, Roy asked me to take on the customer experience side of the business too, which was we have 450 to 500 in the main qualified accountants and bookkeepers that look after our customer base when they need help. And that is an important point because when I took that function on, I realised that they were... Pretty reactive to when customers needed help. So we ended up reimagining that group of people, customer experience, and a lot of them were looking after the accountants and bookkeepers who I saw as an extension of the zero culture and the zero family. We wanted them to amplify what we stood for out to their customer base. And so we transformed that function into support and success. So it was about making sure that we were not only helping our partners when they got stuck or our customers when they got stuck, but we were anticipating what they might need to know before they knew it and we were building using technology, AI and machine learning, the right tools for them to access to ensure that they were continually evolving their knowledge of the power of the platform and being able to get answers to what they needed way before they even knew they needed them. So that education process, again, like taking them on that journey of being curious and making sure that we had the right tools in place for them to be able to leverage what they needed um, way ahead of when they even thought they needed it.
0: I know you've developed a framework that you refer to as JEDI. So for all the Star Wars fans out there, you've got uh, a great name at least. Tell us a little bit about what JEDI means.
1: So Jedi is something that I put in place when I took on the rest of the customer functions. So in October two thousand nineteen, I actually gave up the reins of Chief People Officer because my, the customer side of my portfolio was growing, and we decided to put all of the customer functions under one executive, being Chief Customer Officer. And I succession planning were very big on at zero, and in my Chief People Officer capacity, I'd brought somebody in and groomed them, um, and they were ready to hand those reins. So. Nicole Reid right now looks after Chief, the Chief People Officer role and I'm Chief Customer Officer. And what I realised when I took on everything from marketing through to sales, through to digital transformation, um, through to understanding how we could deepen the relationship with our customers with those 1,000-plus apps and then delighting customers in terms of supporting them but also serving them and educating them was that as an executive team and as a board, we were merely looking at a moment in time which was the sale. So we were talking a lot about revenue, we were talking a lot about customer numbers, but we weren't looking at the whole customer journey end-to-end and we weren't looking at what are the hero metrics to make sure that we understand for both channels, both direct and partner channel, that we are doing everything we can at each one of those five steps of the customer journey. So from their awareness of us through our brand and them finding us, whether it's going onto our digital shop front, being our website, or whether they... Notice us in an ad, in an above-the-line ad somewhere, all the way through to when they consider using us against competitive offerings, so through trial, then through buy, then through delight. What are we doing to ensure that we Sorry, to deepen relationship is the next step. What are we doing to ensure that they're deepening their relationship with us? They're connecting to some of those app partners that are bespoken and unique to the business and the industry in which they operate and then what are we doing to delight them? So how do we make sure that we're serving them in terms of when they need help? But more importantly, how do we make sure that we're continuously educating them about the increased and continuously improving power of the platform? So we now have a dashboard called JEDI, it stands for Journey, Experience and Data Insights, that measures those five steps for direct and five steps for partner at a hero metric level and then there's a plethora of submetrics that sit under that and I can see this beautiful dashboard every day. And I've heard some of your other guests talk about how they wake up in the morning with their cup of coffee and they look at their dashboard. That's what I look at. But I'm not just looking at the revenue numbers, I'm looking at every stage of the customer journey to ensure that we are leaning in, whether it's by region or whether it's you know at a global level, where I can see, you know, the red, amber, green status of each one of those stages of the customer journey. And I can make sure that we are pivoting all of our resources and all of our power behind the areas where I see that they need the most attention
0: well I love I love it when you've got a deliberate framework methodology but you bring that together with metrics to illuminate what's on track what's not on track that's such a powerful combination
1: it is it is and I think it's just like what gets measured gets done justin and if you yeah. can measure if you're only measuring revenue and you're only measuring customer numbers then the top of the funnel may not be in the state that it needs to be to keep those, those growth rates up. Or at the other end, you, know, you may be bringing customers on board, but they're churning out just as fast because they're not being delighted in the experience.
0: Well, Rachel, it's been a fascinating conversation. We're at the top of the hour already. I'll close with my favorite question, which I ask all of my guests. As you look back across your life and when all is said and done, what do you think has made the biggest difference for you?
1: There's two things that come to mind for me, Justin. So the first thing is I had a childhood, not early childhood, but in those sort of teenage years that was pretty dark when I look back and I think about, you know, what I had to navigate at 14 years old um, that that I didn't see coming. It was like out of the blue. And I think that that has formed That created, that accelerated me in terms of wisdom. Like early in my career, I I used to get told all the time, you're so wise beyond your years. But I think it was because I was forced to grow up earlier than than I um, potentially probably needed to. But I don't regret any of that because I think what that taught me is it taught me a lot of tenacity. It taught me that I have an eight sense of drive and that I am fiercely independent and that doesn't mean that I don't have really um, deep and well-established relationships around me, but I know who I am and I know what I want to achieve and I also believe in myself and I can credit, you know, two powerful women in my life, being my mother and my grandmother, for giving me that innate belief in myself to do whatever it is that I choose to do. <clears throat> so that's the first That's the first the first insight that comes to me. The second one is having children of my own. And I think that, like, you know, it sounds pretty clichéd, but I think that to me also makes you grow up very quickly and makes you realise the person that you want to be, the person that you wake up every morning and, and look in the mirror and ask yourself, who do I want to be today? Because I have other people that are now looking up to me. I'm a role model for two daughters. And I want to make sure that my daughters know that they can be anything that they want to be. And there should be nothing that's stopping them from achieving every single one of their aspirations and goals in life.
0: Rachel, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Justin.
0: Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, Be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams inboxes. Visit people.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.